0: Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today, we're going to speak to Dr. DeLemba about using robotics for excision surgery. Dr. Dilemba is an excision surgeon who has been in private practice in Texas since 1986. His focus is on pelvic pain, robotic laparoscopy, adhesions, and of course, endometriosis. I wanted to do this episode because within our community I can see confusion and even some fear about robotic surgery for endometriosis. So I invited on Dr. Dilemba to answer some common questions that come up about it because he has been in practice for decades and he has performed over 5000 standard laparoscopic endometriosis cases so that's 5000 not using robotic surgery and using robotic surgery he's done over 2300 endometriosis cases so 5000 standard and 2300 robotic endometriosis surgery cases. He began performing robotic surgery in 2007, and now all of his cases are done robotically. Dr. DeLumba has a lot of insight on endometriosis surgery, and he's also published papers in addressing pelvic pain, laparoscopy, endometriosis, and robotic surgery. Please join me in welcoming him to the show. Hi, Dr. DeLumba. Thank you so much for your time today. We're so happy to have you on the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. It's sometimes a little difficult to tell you a little bit about myself because when you get to be my age, there's a lot there to say. I didn't start off wanting to become a doctor. Um, grew up in Pittsburgh, was not the most behaved child in the world, um, didn't do very well my first year in high school. So I went away to military school. Um, once there was some discipline, I did well, went to college. And again, <laughs> this is 1967, 68, a long time ago. And kind of went wild after a, a military school for four years. Went in the army because I was getting drafted, flew helicopters, went to Vietnam, came back, was a flight instructor in Wells, Texas, lived in Fort Worth. When I came back, I had matured a little bit. I still have not matured very much, but but more than I was before I went to to Vietnam. Um, I took the CLEP test, college-level exams, because, again, I didn't have any college uh, credits. I went to junior college at night in the area. There was an aeronautical university that gave us credit for our aviation experience, and I took 12 credits during the day. So I was taking 24 credits a semester. So after about a year and a half, I'm now ready to get out of the Army. I go to the main campus in Daytona Beach, got my degree in aviation, wanted to fly for the airlines. The first fuel crisis hit. So I moved back to Pittsburgh, worked at my dad's bar as a bartender, got a job then with Pfizer as a pharmaceutical sales rep. So everybody talks about farming. and I'm like, hey, I was pharma for a while, and they're not all bad. And I thought he really had to be a genius to be a doctor till I called on him, like, I can do this. Went back to Pitt. University of Pittsburgh, did my pre-med, and then I went to the University of Pennsylvania at age 30 to go to medical school and graduated, went back to Pittsburgh, did my training. And then from there, I came down to Texas where they were looking for somebody. So that's how I ended up in Texas.
0: So today we find you as an excision surgeon operating in Denton, Texas, and you are 74 years old. So you had a lot of experience, a lot of insight, which is why we wanted to have you on the podcast today. So I'd love if you tell us a little bit about your background in excision surgery. You know, have you done a fellowship in minimally invasive surgery? And how did you learn about excision and adopt the technique?
1: When I first started medicine, laparoscopy was still in its infancy. So, once I finished my residency and I came down here, I did do some obstetrics, but it turns out I was much better, in my opinion, surgically. And laparoscopy was just something that came to me. But we didn't have many instruments, and it was difficult to get our hospitals to buy the, the equipment that we needed. So, one of the first devices that we had was called an endocoagulator. I mean, we had a probe, an endocoagulator. I don't even think we even had scissors back then. Actually, we did, come to think of it, but not many other instruments, a grasper, endocoagulator. So anything that we saw unusual, we had to ablate. It had this strange noise on it. That was late 80s, early 90s. And then we started to get more equipment. And about the mid, like 92, 93, I was learning how to suture laparoscopically on my own. They didn't have fellowships back then for laparoscopy. So I had to learn this all on my own. I spent a week with Dr. C.Y. Liu, who's retired, learning how to suture laparoscopically because it's not easy. And that's, that's, that's what makes laparoscopy and endometriosis a difficult process because the instruments are backwards. I mean, it's hard. Then at one of my meetings, I met a lady that has an organization called the Endometriosis Association, Mary Lou Ballway. I, I got involved with that and then realized that some of the things that I was taught in residency, that this is a disease of people in their delayed the, the childbearing in their 40s. If you had a painful period, it was a sexually transmitted disease because that's what we were taught. So all of a sudden, I'm seeing it in other patients. They're saying, I have pain, and I'd look in. They're saying, put on birth control pills, and you're still hurting. And Something's going on that isn't correct. So eventually, um, I spent more time doing surgery and, and even went to some of the meetings, and Dr. Redwine was there. And I went, I think this guy knows what he's talking about. Not everything. Every time we argue, he wins because he's smarter than I am. <laughs> so. I started to say, okay, I think cutting this disease out, in ovarian cancer, you cut out the disease, and I'm like, i want to do the same thing. And that's how I got started in excision. I was an early adopter of laparoscopy, and then an early adopter of excision. And then as my skills improved, when you come out of residency, you might not have the skills to do excision, in my opinion. And so I realized to get the best results, you got to cut out the disease. A half a time.
0: So it sounds like you've been doing excision for how many years? Are we thinking like over 25 years at this point?
1: Yes, at least 25, 26 years. Yeah.
0: So, how many cases do you think that you've done in, in your 26 years? How many do you think you've done total? And how many do you think you've done? Ooh, how many do you think you've done via laparoscopy? How many do you think you've done via? Robotic, and how many do you think you've done via laparotomy? If you were still doing laparotomy back then, potentially,
1: I didn't have a lot lapar laparotomy. I didn't do many laparotomies. I was better laparoscopically than I was open, even vaginal. That's probably the least skilled that I have is is vaginal surgery. Open, yeah, I was okay, but I shined laparoscopically, and by the time I finished because I don't do standard laparoscopy anymore since the end of 07 is, is where I, I finished. I had about almost 5,000 cases, standard laparoscopy. And now, and, they, and now they keep track with the robot. <laughs> so I know how many I have. In my mind, I have more, <laughs> but it keeps track. It's about 23, 2,300 endometriosis cases with the, with the robot.
0: Wow. That's so impressive. So I'd love to ask you a little bit about your practice before we get into the questions about robotic surgery. Um, so is your practice solely focused on endometriosis, or you do, do you do other types of surgery for pelvic pain?
1: Well, I do focus on endometriosis, but I also adhesions and pelvic pain, adhesions, endometriosis and robot surgery. That's all I know, and that's all I do. I don't do tap smears, I don't do routine exams. I don't do breast exams, I don't do prolapse, I don't do any of that stuff. I just just operate in the abdominal pelvic cavity.
0: Do you operate alone or do you have a multidisciplinary team in place to handle extra pelvic endometriosis?
1: Well, I operate alone for endometriosis, but I do have a colorectal surgeon. We don't always agree on everything, but she's there. Not for every case. You know, I, I, I want the patient to meet the doctor if any suspicion of a bowel resection is there. And usually on the bowel, I, I cut it off and then repair it. Same thing with the urological side. Most of our urologists are not robotically trained or laparoscopically trained. So if I injure the ureter, I or cut at the ureter, cut at endometriosis, or cut off endometriosis off the ureter, I deal with that. I take care of that. I may have them come in and bless it. <laughs> uh, same thing, you know, taking endometriomas out of the bladder. I do that, fix it. I'll let them come in and look if they, if they please. I have a thoracic surgeon who comes in when we suspect any, any thoracic involvement.
0: How old has your oldest endometriosis patient been, and how young has your youngest endometriosis patient been?
1: The youngest is eight. The oldest 82. That wasn't my oldest patient I've ever operated on, 93, but for endometriosis, 82.
0: Oh, wow. Well, first, I think that really just continues to show that, you know, endometriosis is a disease of any age, which I think that we're keep trying to scream from the rooftops that, you know, we're not too young to have endo or too old to have endo. In the case of the eight year old, how was the endometriosis that you found inside? Was it advanced or? Do you remember what stage it was?
1: Well, for one, I don't stage most of my procedures because that's an infertility staging. And if you really look at the staging, it deals mostly with adhesions and the prediction of the ability to get pregnant. So <laughs> the teens, for one, are the group most ignored. And it's more atypical in its visualization. So we're we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about more about the robot with the 3D it's unbelievable the different appearances. And the same thing with an eight-year-old. She also had a chronic acute appendicitis. Um, she was missing school every couple weeks at eight, and everybody's calling her, she's faking it. Come on. And her father was a major sports figure. So <laughs> they just signed a huge contract. And when I said mentioned surgery, you know, they were out the door. You know, nobody's operating on my eight-year-old. About a month and a half later, they're back. said, okay, we're ready. Okay, not my decision. went in there. And it it was hard because uh, young children, there's a lot of issues you have to take with the size of the instruments, the size of the tube down their throat. So we really had to make some adaptions. Um, You just can't do the same thing you would do with an adult at, at eight versus, you know, when they get a little bit older, you can over 10. But under 10, that's a, that's a big issue. And um, so we took the appendix out, cut out endometriosis. There wasn't a lot, a little bit, which is good. That's why I wanna get this disease when it's early. And, and it wasn't robot then. It was, it was just standard laparoscopy. She did fine and I think came by her office when she was 23 uh, for a bladder infection.
0: Oh my gosh, that is so great. That, and I agree, I think we really have to get this disease early. And we have to believe patients from the beginning instead of gaslighting them and telling them that they're just being dramatic teenagers. You know, I think a lot of people in the community, we, we just have questions about robotic surgery, right? Like we hear a lot about like if sur- some surgeons use robotic surgery, some sur- surgeons do standard laparoscopy. There can be this these questions or these ideas like is one better than the other right like should I go to a surgeon who only does standard and does not use the robot because the robot is dangerous should I only go to a surgeon who uses the robot because the robot is like some magical thing that's going to help me have a better excision so that's really why I wanted to get you on the show because you have done as you said like 5000 standard laparoscopy cases for over 10 years and then since what 2007 so that's like 15 years, you've been doing robotic surgery. So I'd love to ask you, is the robot like this tool that we need? Or is it like, is it the robot? Or is it the surgeon? So I guess what I'm asking is, can an excision surgeon do an excellent excision using the robot or using the standard laparoscopy? What do you think?
1: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> There's a longer answer than that, but yes, I'm not saying that you can't do an excellent job standard laparoscopy, because that's what I did. That's all that we had at one point. Most of what we see on the angst on robotic surgery are from people that don't do it. Or maybe they tried it. They have several thousand cases laparoscopically, and they have five or ten or twenty with the robot. Go, oh, this is ridiculous. Well, yeah, get a couple thousand and tell me you see if you see a difference. You know, there's not a lot that, that have done thousands laparoscopically, standard, and then thousands robotically to compare them. I will never go back to standard laparoscopy, ever. You know, if the robot had been invented first, nobody would do standard laparoscopy, whereas if you want your instrument to move to the right on the inside of your abdomen, you have to move your hand to the left. Opposite movements, counterintuitive. It's like a seesaw. And, you know, up until recently, it was only two-dimensional, 2D. You didn't have 3D, so they are coming out now with 3D. The standard laparoscopy in the past only had two-dimensional visualization. Even though it was HD, it was a big TV screen. You could see a lot of detail. But the robot, the da Vinci robot, is 3D, 10 times magnification. One of the reasons, yeah, you can get a standard laparoscope now to have 3D. Not everybody can have that yet. Eventually, that may be the standard. But right now, the majority have 2D. But if you can get 3D, the problem is somebody might be holding the camera. And if you magnify it, if you move a fifth of an inch, then that translates 10 times magnification to two inches. So when you think your hand is perfectly still, it's going to be moving, and it makes the 3D more difficult, especially if you magnify. You know, if they make tiny movements on the patient's abdomen, it looks like an earthquake in there. Whereas the da Vinci robot, that is perfectly still. So I'm immersed in there with 3D, 10 times magnification. So nobody would go back to one eye and opposite movements and no wrist and elbow action to reach where you need to go. Both devices, standard laparoscopy, and robot laparoscopy, we reach the same areas. It's just easier when you can reach your instruments in and bend and reach. Just easier, not easy, it's easier. And then I can scale my movements with robot laparoscopy. If I move an inch, my instrument moves an inch. Or if I move an inch, I can make it so it moves a fifth of an inch. And there's even more things. So it's not the robot. If you are a bad surgeon, the robot's not going to make you a good surgeon. (laughs) If you are a good surgeon, the robot will increase your skills. If you are an expert laparoscopic surgeon, over a short time, 25, 30 cases, you will be a step above that in my opinion. I think there's data to support it. When you look at the, at the things that you can do and the accuracy and the precision and less fatigue when you're sitting at a padded armrest ergonomically set for me versus standing, you know, holding a camera and an instrument for three hours versus sitting. So we know as we get fatigued, our accuracy and precision go down. What I think is the worst scenario is where a doctor does some standard laparoscopy and some robot laparoscopy. Because as I was developing my skills, I watched my laparoscopic skills decline. You could feel it. But my robotics were coming up. And then you're mediocre with both. Do one or the other. I think it's better if we do robotic. But who wants to be a new surgeon again when you're you know, th- multi-thousand case laparoscopic surgeon? And now you're a new guy. Nobody wants that.
0: So first, what I'm hearing is that when you use the robot and you're just like sitting super comfortable in your ergonomic chair and you're just very immersed in that 3D magnification, you kind of it's like you're in this like virtual reality, and you, you know, Dr. Delombes just inside the pelvis, just slicing endometriosis with what is it? is it? Scissors? I don't know. Is it a scalpel? I don't know what it is. Just slicing away. <laughs> Okay, joking aside, second, what I heard was, you know, for you, the robot has provided better visualization, um, more precision and accuracy in terms of moving the robot. And then I think, obviously, more comfort with. So do you think that with the better visualization of the robot, do you think that you're able to detect, like more endometriosis in a patient? Like, do you think that helps you to see the Like abnormal looking tissue or more subtle, atypical looking endometriosis?
1: Well, in 2013, I published a retrospective study on 280 patients. My last 100 patients laparoscopically, and my first 180 with the robot. I figured that way, you know, since I have like 5,000 cases laparoscopically, I'll do a little bit more robotically. So my first 180, I found about 25% more endometriosis. My appendiceal endometriosis rate was 4% in 1997. And then for that study, my last 100 cases, the rate was the same. The robot with 3D, 25% more endometriosis. And my appendiceal endometriosis rate went up to 30%. Same surgeon, same surgeon. So now, 2018, there was a prospective study. Myself, Dr. Mosbrooker, and his doctor from Ohio. I can't remember the doctor's name. <laughs> um, and we all gathered our data separately and put it together, all came out with the same data 25 to 40% more endometriosis. With, and we were comparing 3D to 2D with the 3D. If you're going to do endometriosis, you got to have 3D sorry, no ifs, ands, or buts. The magnification also helps because you can see with 3D some surface changes in the younger patients. It's called cobblestoning that you cannot see two dimensional. I did a live surgery for one of our meetings on a patient, and I didn't know what her pelvis was going to look like till I got in there. And when I first looked with the regular camera, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's no endometriosis. No. You know, I mean, I just took a quick look around. So I took a deep breath because we're now broadcasting. You know, and, I, and I sat down at the console. And when I went in the cul-de-sac in the left pelvic sidewall, there were surface changes you could not see 2 dimensionally. Again, it, there wasn't a lot of disease there. But so I start cutting it out, excising it. I was using scissors at the time. I like the CO2 laser better to use as a, as a cutting device, but using scissors. The moderator said, oh, nice dissection. But I know what they were thinking is that's normal peritoneum because they were looking at 2D. They didn't see the cobblestoning, And the pathology report came back as endometriosis. So. Yes, the visualization is key. Do I, do I think there's a difference in seeing? Yes. There was a Dr. Murphy from, I think, 1970s, where he was cutting on endometriosis, and he took some normal peritoneum, 25% more endometriosis, or 25% endometriosis in the normal peritoneum, which correlates with what I could see with 3D that they didn't have two-dimensionally. So you can sit there and say, yeah, I got all the disease. You got all the disease you could see. And now 3D makes it even better with the magnification. When you can see those surface changes, it makes all the difference. In the world.
0: Yeah, I was going to bring up a study. And I don't know if Dr. Snervil was also on the study you mentioned, but I know that he did a study, I think, back in 2013 or so with some colleagues. And they also found something similar that Like 25% of the atypical appearing um, peritoneum that didn't look like endometriosis, but just looked atypical, also came back positive for endometriosis on histopathology. So I think definitely being able to recognize the subtle appearances of the disease allows you to get more endo.
1: Well, Dr. Redwine, a friend of mine, he's retired now, and he was one of our pioneers. What he used to do is take the patient's blood and drip it along you know just in a syringe and through a, a probe and drip the blood along normal surfaces and it would ripple so he could tell through the the blood going down now, the only problem is blood does change the surface of the peritoneum water does anything so most of us just look first before we do anything but you know, once you do that, then you better cut it out because now it's going to be changed, the, the, the surface appearance. So he was able to see more endometriosis with 2D, but he was using a technique to do it. And then there's a doctor in New York that uses a, a dye to, that he thinks helps, helps get it. So there's a lot more endometriosis you just can't see just by looking at a TV screen.
0: Yeah, I, w- I wanted to ask you about that because I know with the robot there's like the opportunity to do things like use a dye, or I think there's Firefly. There's also like white light and stuff. So do you think with the robot, there's also an opportunity in the future to continue improving the visualization of endometriosis due to like technological advancements in the robot?
1: There's always that, those ways. I found the Firefly certainly to be advantageous in the younger patients when the disease is not as much their symptoms are great, but they're, they're dis- there's not as much disease, you inject a dye, um, H, uh, ICG into the, the blood vessels, and you only have a short window, <laughs> because then it's, it's absorbed, but you can see some abnormal vessels that you might not be able to see, even with regular light. I think, yes, all the time, more and more technologies are coming out, you know, back in the early nineties they were talking about monoclonal antibodies and tagging to detach the glands and stuff, but then some patients couldn't go outside. So everybody's always looking at 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 ways to identify endometriosis.
0: So Let me ask you, because earlier you said that you also, you feel that the robot is safer. And I know that one of the big concerns for a lot of patients and also concerns sometimes coming out of the medical community from like other doctors who don't use the robot is safety concerns, right? That the robot is extremely dangerous, that, you know, the robot can cause a lot of complications or even like butcher your insides. Um, so what do you think about that in your experience? And I do want to say, of course, that like, not just anyone can go grab the robot and use it the first time around, right? Like the robot also requires a certain skill level and experience level. So as part of that, I'd love to know, like at what, like at how many surgeries I'm making this question really long. I'm sorry. Um, but at how many surgeries do you think like a surgeon becomes proficient in the, in the robot and how do they practice if. Like when they do their first surgery, they're not very skilled. so, like how do they get up to let's say one hundred or one hundred and fifty surgeries in the robot if their skills aren't that good at the beginning?
1: Well, for one, it's much easier to do surgery robotically than it is laparoscopically to learn. no if and buts. as an example, I had back in oh seven I had some Docs from the, from the UK come to visit and observe, and one of them wasn't a doctor, it was a doctor's wife, who's a nurse, PhD, she doesn't go, she's never been in the operating room. Oh, I was letting everybody practice, and so what I did is I took micro ZD, which is a, a pasta, like kind of a little tube, but micro. It was very tiny, and I purposely overcooked it so that it was very, <laughs> not very firm, and so that was supposed to be the ureter. <laughs> and I, you know, that would take little pepper and put it on chicken, you know, on the inside. So they had to dissect it. I, I had to cut it open and then they had to suture it closed. Well, she had never been in the operating. And in 20 minutes, I was able to teach her to suture and tie. Are you ready for this? Not everybody will know what this means. 8-0 Vicryl Suture. You can't see it with your regular eyes, eyesight. You have to be careful moving it with, with an instrument because you'll bend the needle. 20 minutes. You cannot teach anybody to suture in 20 minutes, micro ZD overcooked. You cannot. 20 minutes. She's done a surgeon. She could do it and didn't break the suture. I think the first one she did eventually. Um, but you'll cut right through it when you're tying the knot. You cannot do that standard laparoscopy in 20 minutes. You can't even do 8.0 in 20. You know, (laughs) I don't think I could ever do 8.0. There's a wonderful video to watch on YouTube, Da Vinci Origami. It's about a minute, minute and a half. And I urge patients to to watch it. Look at it. Because my very first patient that I was going to do surgery on, I had never met before. She came from, from out of town. And we're doing surgery the next day. And I said, Oh, by the way, we're going to use the robot on you. Her eyes got this big. By the way, you're going to be my first case. Her eyes got this big. <laughs> I showed her that video. She said, Let's do it. If you watch that video, the Da Vinci origami, you will then understand because you cannot, I've challenged people, you cannot do that laparoscopically. Cannot.
0: I want to operate on really small overcooked CD, but let me backtrack a little bit on my questions. So how many surgeries do you think it takes, in your opinion, for the surgeon to become proficient at the robot?
1: Well, they've actually done some studies on safety, on, not on patients, to look at that. From what I've seen, and I've proctored a lot of doctors with the robot, like 180 I've taught. I would say if you are an endometriosis or a laparoscopic expert already, probably somewhere between 10 to 20, and you will be right where you were. If you never have been on the robot, this could take a little bit more, 25, maybe 50, because you're just learning a lot of surgical skills through there. So it, it doesn't take a lot. So, the, as I mentioned, one of the studies, they took the da Vinci robot and they took expert laparoscopic surgeons and never done surgery surgeons, <laughs> you know, neophyte laparoscopic surgeons. And then they did it laparoscopically and robotically for both. And so it was like a double, double arm. You know, they were comparing you know, the expert on laparoscopy and then the expert laparoscopist on the robot. Both of them had less technical errors with the robot. Even if you were a laparoscopic expert, you had less errors on the robot, and it's new for them. You could be much more accurate, precise with the robot. There's just no way of or buts. And, I'm, and I even tell my patients, laparoscopic experts, endometriosis experts, do a wonderful job. If they had patience enough and pushed themselves enough, they would be even a tad bit better. But they do an excellent job, they really do. But I think that they could even be better with the robot. They don't wanna hear it, but that's true. Because they look at 2D videos at our meetings or online and they go, oh, that's exactly what I do. Well, yes, because it's two dimensional. When you are in there, totally different, totally different. It's not. I don't think the 3D, laparoscopic 3D is as good, in my opinion, as the robot 3D. But that's just my opinion because I have not done laparoscopic 3D.
0: Well, now I want to go watch the um, Da Vinci origami video. But I will say that a few years back, have you ever seen the documentary The Bleeding Edge on Netflix? It was basically about like up and coming medical devices and different harm that they've done to the patients. So there was an entire section in the documentary about the Da Vinci robot and how like, you know, doctors were just taking this robot after like a one weekend training and just like taking these, taking the robot and and harming the patient. So, you know, you gave like quite a low number of operations that you think many surgeons would need to potentially become like more proficient at the robot. But um, what kind of training do you think is involved during that? Because it's not just grabbing the robot and doing the surgeries. I mean, they also have to get training. Is that right?
1: Yes. You have to be a surgeon you have to know anatomy. You have to know the disease process. You have to know all of that. And from, from some of the training that I did, you know, one time I was like, don't ever call me back here. <laughs> so it's not the robot that does it. It's the surgeon that does it. But you know, the funny thing is, you know, I was involved with early adoption of standard laparoscopy. And trust me, you talk about being called a cowboy, being called, you know, yahoo, he's out here just, you know, trying to kill these patients. You know, I remember when I did early appendectomies, <laughs> like 1989, 90, I think it was. And, you know, the general surgeons wanted to chop my legs off. He said, how dare you? This is heresy. Now it's a standard. How many uh, appendices are not taken with, the, with laparoscopy? We saw the same thing. It costs too much. Takes too long. I'm doing just fine. Open. I don't need laparoscopy. I mean, this is this is insane. What are you guys crazy? Literally. And then I was giving a lecture in in London. Doctor, well, they call him Mister of their surgeon, Mister Ray Gary, was writing a publication about the robot. And he came up to me afterwards. I'm I'm friends with him. And he goes, you know, I had an epiphany last night. I was writing about how bad the robot is. And as I wrote the words, takes too long, costs too much, I'm doing just fine. I went, oh my gosh, that's exactly what everybody said with standard laparoscopy. And any change to the medical profession always runs into black everything. 1700s, wash your hands and your patients will live. The guy died a popper, okay? So.
0: (laughs) I think that is very interesting, you know, that you were able to be operating at the time when surgery, you know, especially like gynecological surgery was changing from laparotomy to standard laparoscopy. And nowadays it's like almost no one does laparotomy anymore. And I mean, if a surgeon is, if you are going to, and laparotomy is when you do like a large incision and you like open the, you know, open the pelvis up versus like laparoscopy is when you just do those like little cuts and you stick in the instruments and you're like looking at, it has like a camera and you're like looking at the screen. So, you know, nowadays it's like no one would be going to a surgeon who's like, yeah, I'm going to excise your endometriosis via laparotomy. It's like, no, don't touch me. Like, (laughs) heck no. First of all, your visualization is like so poor because you're just like standing there at arm's length from the patient. And second of all, like, you know, those huge incisions. And so I think we see that as technology like moves on surgically, we are able to get better results. So. Personally, I think there's so much to be discouraged about with endometriosis care, right? Like we're still believing in the same tired old theory as a hundred years ago. Like we're still gaslighting all the patients, like, you know, our organize- national organizations, like don't even know the definition of endometriosis. It's just like, we're, we're always up against so much, but I actually do feel really excited about the future because at least at this time, endometriosis is a surgical disease. And so the advancements that we can keep making in the surgery, I think, is only going to help the patient. Are you excited for the future of excision? What are you, What are your thoughts on this?
1: Yes and no, because in Europe, their kind of their guidelines are going away from surgery, and I'm afraid because of the economic, you know, upheaval occurring throughout the world, including the United States, I think that might actually be going the same way. But if you look at ACOG guidelines, they say reserve surgery for the severe cases. What other disease in the world do we sit and say, let's wait till it's really bad, and then we're going to try and fix it? No, we need to get a disease early so we don't have to do bowel resections, cut into the ureters, cut into the lungs, the diaphragm, the liver, take out you know, organs, the bowel, they lose their kidneys, cut into the bowel. That's insane to sit there and let it get worse and try and mask the symptoms. So so yes I'm excited but no I'm not. There are a lot of new things coming out and I think that is exciting. It is a surgical disease but some of the data out there says burning equals excision. Well I'm gonna be staying next week with a friend of mine who is one of the authors of one of those early articles. <laughs> Mr. Jeremy, Jeremy Wright. Mr. Wright, they did a study, was a small study, where they burned endometriosis and cut endometriosis. But he was an excision. He spent three months with David Redwine. So he knew how to excise. And I know when he burned, he burned like he cut. <laughs> okay. But there's something that I that I I think we're going to be talking about at some other point that yes, there is better outcome long term in my opinion and data when you excise the disease.
0: Going back to your friend, Mr. Wright or Doctor Wright, who did the study, that study is quoted in the uh, European guidelines under like the part about excision and ablation. There's been very few studies comparing excision, ablation, and you know, a study is only good as the methodology. A study is only good as the surgeon's skills. And it's unfortunate. And I've talked at great length about the ACOG guidelines and other guidelines on this episode. Cause I love, I love ragging on the national bodies because they're just really, they're not helping us, you know? So, <laughs> you know, it is, it is just, it's so disappointing. Cause as you said, it's like, they're in, at least in the ACOG guidelines, it's like, they're, they don't even distinguish between excision and ablation. So it's just like, you can just go in there and just like do what you want, right? And it's like, no, that's that's not how you should treat this disease and like get on board people. But going back to the robot, can the robot do ablation and excision? Is it just depends on what the surgeon does? Um, that's my understanding, right? It's not like the robot just only does excision or only does ablation. The robot does what you tell it to do.
1: Well- we have the same instruments as they have laparoscopic sometimes almost identical you ablate with with unipolar scissors or a hook or whatever you want to use but it's the same surgery we same graspers everything except our instruments have wrist and elbow movement with it so we can you know instead of just trying to bring the tissue to the to the instrument to to get where you need to go. We take the instrument to the tissue. So you're not tugging and pulling as much. But yeah, you could, you know, doctors ablate with the robot. I don't agree with it. You know, it makes it harder. And when it becomes fibrotic on the surface that endometriosis, they didn't get it all. The surface might look dead, but it's not dead all the way through. Then it seeks the path of least resistance and makes subsequent surgeries more difficult. But yes, you can, You can do whatever surgical instrument you feel comfortable with removing the disease with either standard laparoscopy or robot laparoscopy. It's still laparoscopy. That's what everybody like, oh, no. People think you lose a tactile sense with the robot. And they said the same thing about standard laparoscopy. If you think back, because they would put on a laparotomy, you'd have your hands in there. But even still, when you had your hands in there, you had lamps. So it wasn't your hands. It was clamps. And then they, with laparoscopy, you get this long instrument. And they said, oh, you're going to lose a tactile sense. Well, you developed a tactile sense through the long metal instrument. So now, since the robot is like 20 feet away from me, <laughs> the patient, you don't have so much that same tactile sense through the metal but you develop a visual, and I can still tell what's hard and soft. As I described trying, having tie that suture, A.O. Vicro, it's thinner than a hair, and she was able to suture and tie it and not break it. You develop a visual tactile sense. You know what's hard, soft, how you're you're pulling. And, And so, you know, doctors will use anything to negate what they don't want to believe, anything. They will say makeup stuff. You know, I heard of a doctor that's saying, oh, my gosh, you know, if you ever had robotic surgery, you know, you should look at a lawyer. I'm like, what? it's it's laparoscopy. It's just more accurate and precise. Just people will say anything <laughs> if they don't agree with it. Um, one of the things I might, when if you lift your head out of the console, your instruments freeze. Boom, they don't move. So it's not like this robot is in there moving willy-nilly.
0: No, (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for clarifying that the robot is indeed just a tool, because I think there is some misconception that, oh, if the surgeon is a robotic surgeon, they automatically do excision, and that's not true, right? Or if the surgeon is a robotic surgeon, they're automatically really great at excising, and that is also not true, right? So I think the most important thing as, you know, you're sharing here your experience, your insight, your opinions. Obviously you've been very, you're very skilled at both standard laparoscopy and robotic surgery. But the main takeaway here is that the robot is not magic, right? The robot is just a tool and it all comes down to the operator who is using the tool. So what is the operator? Just like any question we would ask our excision surgeon is, How many cases have you done? How many years have you been operating? How long have you been using the robot? How many cases? Like, have you seen complex cases of endometriosis? What would you do if you were encountered bowel endometriosis? What are your rates of colostomy? You know, what are your complication rates? So it's like all of the questions that we would normally ask, the surgeons still need to be asked for a surgeon who is robotic because the robot is no, it's no different in terms of tools than using a standard. Laparoscopy, right? It comes down to the person who is holding the tools in their hand. Um, so, really appreciate you, you know, answering all those questions because I think in our community we do have just a lot of confusion there about that. So, we talked a lot about advantages of the robot. So, do you think that there are any disadvantages of robotic surgery?
1: Yes, there's always disadvantages. For one, trocar placement or instrument placement. We all use the belly button. I mean, that's pretty standard. I mean, there are times when you have to not use the belly button, but in general, most cases are the camera goes through the belly button. So that gives you, as you need, a 360 degree view of the inside of the abdomen. If I put my instruments down by the bikini line, then I would be like Tyrannosaurus Rex's upper arms. I would have less range of motion. Um, <laughs> if you've ever seen Tyrannosaurus Rex, those arms aren't very functional, right? So by putting them up parallel to the belly button, I then have my full range of motion so I can have elbow and wrist action. Almost every robotic surgeon that has really done a lot of cases will give up any instrument in the world as long as he can keep elbow and wrist action it is tremendous to be able to bend your your wrist to reach and cut and grab it it, it's so much more beneficial it's as nice as having your your actual hands in there versus a straight instrument that doesn't bend you can grab things but you kind of have to torque to get there so by putting them parallel to belly button aesthetically it's not as pleasing it's not a huge incision it's eight millimeters versus five millimeters of standard laparoscopy. We're talking about a fifth of an inch to a third of an inch, not a big incision. Now, I use a an assistant port because it's up underneath the ribs on the left side. One, that's where my assistant stands. Some doctors place it elsewhere, you know, in the in the abdomen, because the arms on the outside moving are very powerful. And you, as your assistant, it's a hard job for them dodging those arms so it doesn't hit them. Um, and sometimes we can actually hit them on purpose and they yeah, you know, acting like we don't know that because we're we're inside the console, but you can tell. Like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so we take out specimens through the assistant port, needles through there. And for my cases, I actually use a bigger one. It's about 12 millimeters, so about a half an inch. Some don't use one that size. I I, I some of the specimens we take out are pretty large. You know, when you cut out an entire pelvic sidewall, that's a pretty big size of tissue. Now, on an extremely difficult case, I will add an extra robot arm. So I can have a camera and three arms. Now, I only have two. (laughs) So I can only operate two at a time. But I can use one as a retractor. So I can lift a tissue with one arm. Then I hit a pedal and it stays right there. And then I can operate and then I hit the pedal and then my other arm stays and then I, I, I move it. So, you know, aesthetically it, you know, everybody goes, Oh my gosh, I only use three. Well, four is more than three, five's more than three, but even sometimes when I did three, I would stick an extra one in there for, so yeah, there's an extra hole using, using robotic surgery. But I also, um, along with robots, I use a voice-activated device to move the uterus around. Um, I wear a microphone, and it has um, four save positions, position one, two, three, or four, which I, at the beginning of the case, I put the the uterus all the way up, all the way down. That's one, two, and then all the way left, all the way right, three, four. And then I can find two, move in, move left, move right, move up, move out, move back. So nobody has to hold it, and it doesn't move during the case. Because if you paid two plus million dollars to have an accurate, precise robot, you don't want the uterus moving around like it's Halloween and you're bobbing for apples. So and if you think that the uterus, that the person's still holding that, that, you'd be shocked the tiniest movement, magnified 10 times, is a huge movement. So I want my uterus to be perfectly still and to be able to move it, from side to side, up and down, and it acts like another retractor. So, again, that's part of the robotics. So, it's not all just the Da Vinci. I love technology. Technology is not always good, but in this case, when you're dealing with cutting out disease and other organs, there, you want it to be as safe as possible.
0: So, what I'm hearing is that you don't want a wandering womb while you're operating. That's a little hysteria joke there. That's a good one. But
1: it's fascinating because I was an expert witness at a, a surgical complication that the doctor was using a robot. I don't like being an expert against doctors because we've got enough on us. But I know what happened is that assistant allowed the uterus to kind—he wasn't pushing in hard enough—and the and the uterus came down and the, the surgeon cut both ureters and didn't recognize it. And, and I think it was because the assistant was not helping. And that's key. A good assistant makes surgery much easier. I mean, you have to know anatomy. Everybody has to know anatomy. But if you have the best visualization, your surgery goes better.
0: If you were to reoperate on a patient who's already had robotic surgery, do you typically use like the old incisions, the same location?
1: I try. We all have where we feel most comfortable with where our instrument placements are. If they've never had surgery, I actually measure because I want to at least be eight centimeters away from the camera so that the arms don't bump on the outside. So I measure at least nine, 10 centimeters out and then put my placement. Then for my assistant, I say, where do you want it? Because no matter where I put it, they're not going to like it. So that way it's their fault if it's not good. But um, yeah, I, I do try. If they have an assistant port on the right, my assistant will moan so much, I actually might make another one on the left. So yeah, aesthetics is important, but... I look at it that they're having surgery because their life is interfered with, and I want to give them the best opportunity to feel as good as they can. So I want to really do a good job in placing the instruments where, where I'm comfortable with is, is, is key to me.
0: Yeah, I would think so too. I would think that what's most important is you're used to putting your instruments in a certain spot to be successful, and that would be very important.
1: It's a great tool for many, many surgeons. I think I mentioned this before, but I want to reiterate. So many more doctors can be very good and expert with the robot that could ever do it laparoscopically. Not everybody can do what endometriosis experts do laparoscopically. And I didn't know that until I did the robot. I thought, Everybody could have laparoscopic skills. And then I'm like, oh, my gosh, no. (laughs) That's a special skill that not everybody has to be able to move these instruments like this. And the instruments on the inside are straight and going opposite ways of your hand. And you are looking at a TV screen and translating that into your mind and cutting out around dangerous areas. We have more people that could be experts robotically because of the da Vinci.
0: That sounds so promising and so hopeful. Do you think there's any situations where the use of robotics would not be appropriate with endometriosis?
1: Well, if the surgeon doesn't have the skill level, then, then yes, don't do it in those cases. I used to give a lot of lectures for the company that, that made, the, made the da Vinci because I don't work with them now way to falling out, because I didn't agree with some of their ideas. When they first were teaching people, they wanted to use all of the all four arms. And having been a flight instructor in helicopters, I said, that's wrong. You don't want to do that, because you can't teach somebody to fly a helicopter by giving them all the controls. We would give them the foot pedals, And it took a while for them to get it then we would give them this other control called a collective that makes the helicopter go like up and down and then we would give them the control in the middle called the cyclic that's the hardest because it's a disc and you know the slightest movement and you're you're moving and then once they mastered those three things individually then we would give them two instruments two controls and it's the same thing. So and eventually, you know, when you gave them all of them, they almost kill you. <laughs> and so you were really cautious. But then they would get it. But you didn't do that at first. And it's the same thing. When you, somebody's learning, you don't give them a camera and three arms and they lose where the arm is and they're, they're floundering. So we fought on that. So to me, that's key is take things in a stepwise, do easy cases. And everybody agrees in most of the literature and in, in discussions, the hard cases are easier, not easy, but easier using the da Vinci robot. But in my opinion, it's even easier or it's even better for the easy cases because you see more. And then remember, I mentioned the 40, 40 percent is in the easy. It's in the less disease. So. And getting back to your question, I feel, I might be wrong, but I, in my opinion, anything you can do open or laparoscopically, you can do robotically, anything, and easier, because now with the robot, the, and the bed move together. So when you're operating down in the pelvis and you want to go up to the diaphragm, and that's one of the things I forgot to mention on the diaphragm, why use here, is I want to be able to reach up to the diaphragm and get the appendix adhesions on the sidewalls, but you can rotate your instruments with the da Vinci and tilt the bed up, down, sideways. And that's why colorectals have really embraced the robot now because they can do bowel resections, you know, on, on the right, on the left, they just move the patient. And so the bowel moves out of the way and the instruments move. Yeah, you did that laparoscopically, but it, but that was a disadvantage you couldn't do that with the robot. Once you were, had the dock, the robot instruments in there, you couldn't move the patient. You had to undock to move them. Now, that's gone and and it's just it's awesome. One thing that I didn't mention, and I and I don't know if anybody everybody will understand this. This was awesome for me. And in the operating room, I was saying, "Look, look what I'm doing." And they're looking at the camera, at the screens on the outside going You're doing what you always do. I'm like, no. So sometimes when you're reaching, you're like at the limit. You haven't rotated the instruments or the robot or anything. And I'm trying to get an appendix or adhesions over in that area. So my right hand is usually the instrument that I do cutting with, whether it's scissors, whether it's the laser. Because of where I'm trying to reach, I can't access that area. I, I can get close, but not, whereas my left hand can come in where my grasper and sealer's at and reach that area, so I took the instruments out, put my cutting device in my left hand and my grasper in the right, so now I could do it, but I'm so used to cutting with my right hand that it was awkward because now I'm cutting right by the bow, and it's and that my left hand doesn't have that same sense and feel, so what did I do? I swapped controls so that I controlled my left instrument with my right hand and my right instrument with my left hand. So I'm cutting with the hand I not only cut with, but with my left instrument. I don't know. Did do you understand that?
0: <laughs> I did. So, you know, you couldn't reach with your dominant hand, which is the right hand that you were going to cut with. You couldn't get there. So you did a little sees of the instruments. And then you were going to go with at it with the left instrument with the left hand, but you weren't as dexteritous in the left hand and didn't have that same, which I thought was interesting. You said that because we were talking about like how you acquire that sense of haptic touch, like, you know, you've acquired that in the right hand. So that was interesting that like you just didn't feel that you had it to the same um, level as in the right hand, which you normally do it. So I think that's also like a great example of how like you do get that touch, like that sense of touch back as you operate with the robot. So anyway, you just like, then you just swap these of the controls and you were like, yeah, I'm going to put the left hand control in the right hand. And then you went for it. So just, there you are again in your VR, just like shoom, 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 going at it with your, with your laser. Yeah. I love that. And I love how much detail you're going in to explain all these things to us because we're not in the operating room. And we only know what kind of glimpse and pieces of what we get told. And sometimes what we see on social media isn't right, or we're not like hearing from experts or people with a lot of experience. So like, I think it's just really cool to hear you talking about it and like imagine you in there excising the endo. Now we talked about visualization and how, you know, in your opinion, that is better robotically. But I'm also wondering, do you think in terms of like excising itself. So not seeing the endo, but in terms of like the actual cutting out of endometriosis with the tools, do you think that is improved or increased or like better robotically? Or do you think it's the same thing? Cause they are very similar tools.
1: It's very similar. I don't know if, if in that case, the, the, the robotic instruments are, are any different. I mean, I use scissors. I use CO2 laser. I like CO2 laser better for cutting. The the scissors are faster. (laughs) I mean, you you can take the CO2 laser and cut across the the ureter, you know, just moving quickly, and it it will just not even a cell depth. But you could do that laparoscopically, too. So so the, the actual cutting of the tissue is similar. Where I think there's a difference is because of the wrist action. You know, you kind of with with instruments, the the standard laparoscopy there, it's like taking a a chopstick or a pencil and sticking it in there and having a a typical end instrument, whether it's scissors, grasper anything. And so you kind of have to make do to pull the tissue where you need to either cut it. Um, I still pull tissue and cut it. But when I have wrists that I can move and bend and elbows, it's easier, in my opinion, to be cutting out some of those surfaces. As an example, on some endometriosis on the bowel, say it's not too deep, just a you know a little bit deep, so I can use my CO2 laser and outline where I want to cut, and then use my grasper and elevate it. You can do that with the standard laparoscopy. But remember, you are coming with instruments that don't bend or move. So it's easier for me to pull that endometriosis up a little bit and then have my wrist cutting the, the endometriosis in a different line than I might have to do it laparoscopically. You would end up moving it in line with your, your laser from your, from your camera or down another port but again, it doesn't bend. Whereas the robot CO2 laser has, is flexible. It bends. <laughs> and I didn't use it for a long time because it didn't bend. And I went, no, I lo- I'm not giving up my wrist and elbow until they made a flexible CO2 laser. So I, I think that's the only real advantage difference in, in when you're excising is it, it makes a bigger difference. Um, even just like dissecting up the ureter you know, my wrist can bend to either side. And so I can actually follow the curvature a little bit better than you do with a straight instrument. I I still did this exact same thing, standard laparoscopy. It just makes it a little bit easier, not easy, but easier when I can bend my elbow and wrist to follow the curvature of of some of the organs.
0: Okay, my almost last question is, In some countries, there are doctors who, there are excision surgeons who give the patient a choice of doing robotic or standard laparoscopy. I think oftentimes because maybe robotic surgery costs more, so there's like an extra cost to the patient. I mean, typically the surgeon that you go to, you know, would do one or the other, right? It's like, if you go to you, Dr. Delumba, like you're going to get a robotic surgery because that's what you do, right? So I think most of the time when you go to the surgeon, it's like, oh, I do standard or I do robotic and like, this is, you know, this is what your excision is going to be. But if the doctor presents the patient with a choice and says like, oh, I do both, which one do you want? Like, what do you think the patient should do? Should the patient go with, you know, ask the doctor what they're more comfortable in or like, should the patient be making that decision or should the doctor be making that decision?
1: Well, in my opinion, that's evidence-based medicine. (laughs) Because it's the best data, the clinical experience of the doctor, and the needs and wants of the patient. And that's always left out. So I don't have a problem with offering patients an option on something. What I have a problem with, and I think I mentioned it earlier, I think doing both is the worst scenario. You pick one. You want to be an endometriosis expert. I think you should pick the robot. But if you pick laparoscopy, standard laparoscopy, then do that don't go back and forth. You will be mediocre at both. You think you might be an expert, but you're going to be mediocre at both. If you want to be an expert, be an expert. And so I even tell my patients, I will not ever give less than what I think is the best for my patient. Why would I go back to either one eye or straight instruments with no elbows, wrist action, you know, and me getting fatigued, standing up? It doesn't make sense. If you wanna do it, fine, but I don't think that's the best way. Pick one. And and there are some of our endometriosis experts that do it because they go, oh, for the younger patients, aesthetically or models, I'm like, okay, then you could do their surgery, you know, because they don't want the little holes where I'm gonna put them, that's fine. But if you come to me, I'm gonna try and do give you the best, what I think is the best approach for this disease, to have symptom-free, disease-free, and as we talk about on the other thing, adhesions less. And, and so that's my job. It really is. That's my job. And my job is not just doing surgery. If I just do surgery, I'm a technician. My job is educating patients. And I spend so much time educating my patient. I start off with, you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to believe me. I want you to keep an open mind and hear what I have to say. And then you get to sort through what you want. You know, if if you believe me, fine. If you don't believe me, that's okay, too. And I, you know, it's a long visit. And I want patients to know who I am. If somebody's got to operate on me, uh, on the inside of my abdomen, I want to know who that is. What's your sense of humor? Do you have any? You know, what's your life like? How'd you get here? You know, what are you? You know, I don't want to sit there and act like this wonderful professional. And on the outside, you know, normally with friends, I'm laughing and joking. No. I want them to know me. A lot of patients don't like my silly sense of humor. Sorry, that's me. But I'm going to tell them who I am. And and I spend a good time trying to find out about the patient. Where are you from? You know, we talk like 20, 30 minutes before we even start talking about their symptoms. And then we talk about endometriosis. Then the longer part, treatment options. Average two to three hours.
0: Yeah, in part two, we're actually going to talk a little bit about what you talk about in your, you know, initial consult oh, yeah, of two just... to three hours. Um, so I'm excited to hear about that, because I think that's really great that, you know, that is part of that informed consent. And I think as patients, we are so used to being ignored and dismissed and brushed off that it's so refreshing to be with a doctor who, not that we're on equal level when we talk to each other, but... I would say more like the fact that you do let your sense. like I met you at the endometriosis summit and and I met you before actually in Dallas. So we've met on multiple occasions. Right. And so like you do really let your personality like come through and you do have quite a sense of humor, <laughs> but you know, I like that because it's like, as a patient, like, I want to know what, as you said, who is operating on me and like what are these persons skills and like what's my gut instinct and like, do I trust this person? And I, I want to have like equal footing with you because like, yes, you're my surgeon. And yes, you are an expert in the operating room, but I'm an expert of my body. Right. And so I love that we, you know, talking to you, it's like, you can see that the patient is the expert in their own body and you can lay out the facts. And some of the problems is that, you know, things aren't laid out. So it's just like, oh, we can do robotic or or like standard laparoscopy. It's like, well, that's not informed consent. If you're not giving me all the facts about like, well, which one are you better at? Which one do you have lower recurrence rates? in like, do you feel that one is better than the other? Like, is there one that you have more skill and experience? Do you have one that you prefer? So I think there's so much more that goes into making informed consent. And that's that information part. All right. So last question for you is, I know that you used to work for teaching robotic surgery. Are you right now being employed by any robotics company or like, what was your involvement when you were teaching robotics?
1: Well, early on, I was in their advisory board when we were talking about different instruments. And that's how I know everybody that was in there is that we need wrist and elbow action. Then I was also a speaker, and I was paid. And then I also a proctor, and I got paid for that very well. But I, I enjoyed it. It was it was amazing. I mean, having got the proctor urologist doing prostatectomies and colorectal surgeons and cancer surgeons... Because you don't proctor the procedure, you're proctoring the robot. And one guy, an oncologist, it was fascinating, he had been proctored nine times. The proctor that had been there uh, said, this doctor not only shouldn't be doing the robot, he shouldn't be doing any surgery. So I got a call and they said, would you come up? So I go up there and, and um nice, really, really nice doctor. The first two cases, really bad. You're never supposed to, like, touch instruments or anything when you're Wait, proctoring. sorry,
0: can I ask you, what does a proctor do? Are you, like, just monitoring or are you a yes. teacher what is – you're just yes. monitoring the case?
1: Yes, although in Kentucky, one time I proctored somebody and had to sign a form that they said they would cover me insurance-wise. If, if I saw for the patient's benefit, if need be, I would take over the case. That's the only time I've ever seen that because um, you don't have privileges there. You just are – you're basically an observer but you are watching, you can give suggestions. And, but this doc, I actually said, move your left hand, and he couldn't move his left hand, so I had to reach in and move his left hand for him. And so the third case, it wasn't, and I think, another day, third case, it was just as bad. And I'm, and I'm looking at it, because everybody knew what was going on in the operating room. And the rep for the robot company I said, I'm telling you, this is really bad. And for some reason, a new assistant came in and started to help this doctor more as an assistant. And I've seen that before. And all of a sudden, he's turned into this amazing surgery. And we're all looking like, what in the world? Where'd this come from? And so I signed him off. And then a couple of years later, I said, how's this doctor doing? He said, absolutely wonderful. So it just took him a little bit longer, something just, or just clicked. I don't know. But again, you know, it was just fascinating to, to watch him change. I, I just wanted to throw that in there. It was, I, I just love this. So I, I don't get paid now. They, they don't have a lot of proctors that go around. They use local people because so many people are trained now.
0: So when you were doing like the proctoring, the teaching, that was, I assume that was many years ago, you said.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think the last time I proctored was probably 2012 or 14, somewhere in there. It's fascinating to watch people that I have proctored because they remember me. I don't remember them. They go, Oh, you you know, I came to your lecture and now I do this. And, you know, in fact, I think I even shared with you that there's a doctor down there. And, you know, in 2010, he came to my lecture in, in Florida. And decided he was going to do the robot. Now he's an expert. You know? <laughs> I mean,
0: yeah, that was my surgeon. Now he's a teacher and he teaches the robot all over the country. A lot, a lot.
1: Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: He's,
1: he's actually, I think, part of their whole speaking bureau. Because I got irritated. I, I, everybody, I get irritated with everybody. Everybody gets irritated with me because I don't want to just do mantra. I do what I believe
0: that's good, I think we need more we need more people like you in the medical field where you do what you believe and you fight for that, okay, Dr. Zalamba, thank you so much for coming on um, my podcast. I cannot tell you how much we appreciate everything that you do for the endometriosis community. I mean, apart from operating for more than twenty five years, you know, I know that you're active in the community, I've seen you at different endometriosis events and summits, so I know you're out there not only operating, but also educating. So I just really want to thank you for your commitment. I know even today, it's like, you know, you're telling me that you operated and yesterday you operated, you you do your patient consults sometimes at night. So it's like you're just working all day long and you managed to find the time to fit in this episode um, so that we could learn more about robotic surgery. And it is so, so appreciated. So thank you so much. Well,
1: thank you. And Actually, I enjoy this and I love to share things that I believe. And just like what I tell patients in my office, you don't have to agree with me. Investigate, don't just listen what somebody tells you. And look at that Da Vinci origami video before you. And remember, you're looking at it two dimensional. Imagine if you were looking at it 3D. The spreading any information and pushing other doctors and other patients and medical field in general so that patients can get help, not just in endometriosis, not just in adhesions, not just in pelvic pain, everything. We have to push because if we don't, then these guidelines that really just help the bell curve in the middle aren't going to be enough for the patients that really need it.
0: A hundred percent. I'll go ahead and I'll put, you know, how to find you in the show notes today so that people can find your practice if they're interested in um, operating with you. And we will have you back in a part two. And I know you're going to talk about adhesions, hormonal receptors on the lesions um, that you've been doing research into. So we'll see you then. Before we end, I just want to give a huge thank you to Dr. DeLumba for his time, for coming on the show and sharing his insight, experiences, and opinions. I really enjoyed our conversation today and hearing about robotic surgery from such an experienced surgeon who has more than 7,000 endometriosis surgery cases under his belt. So, before we end, I just want to reiterate that the robot is just a tool. Laparoscopy can be done via robotic surgery or standard laparoscopy, and both techniques can potentially give the patient a good outcome. With low complication rates. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to put in the show notes today some links to studies looking at complication rates and outcomes comparing standard and robotic surgery for endometriosis if you want to check those out. It's really important to know that there are excellent excision surgeons with great patient outcomes and low complication rates who use the robot and there are excellent excision surgeons with great patient outcomes and low complication rates who don't use the robot and who do standard laparoscopy. What's most important is not if you're having a standard or robotic laparoscopy, but rather the surgeon's ability to recognize endometriosis in all of its colors, appearances, and locations, and to safely excise it from all locations. And just remember that if your surgeon does do robotic surgery, it's really important to know that using the robot is also a skill in itself. So therefore, you should ask your surgeon questions to gauge their skills using the robot, such as how many surgeons they've done using it, how many excisions, how much training they've had, etc. All right, thanks for joining us today, and we'll talk to you next time.